Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be back. I've missed you. For those of you who didn't know, I've been away for three Sundays, and um, I'm about to go away for three more Sundays. So when they found out that I was here for one Sunday only, they put me to work. (laughs) What really counts when you're deciding who to vote for? Hmm, there's a question. What really counts? What do you look for? I use the word look because it turns out that appearances really matter. In a recent study, researchers gave Swiss children this challenge. You're going on a boat journey. Who do you want to be captain of your boat out of these two pictures of people? Who would you prefer to be the boat captain? The children didn't know it, but they were looking at competing candidates for the upcoming French election. (laughs) Overwhelmingly, the children were able to pick the eventual winner of the election just by looking at their photos and deciding who would be the better boat captain. Uh, Children, what would they know? We adults, we're much more aware, uh, not nearly as fickle. Actually, when adults were asked the same question, they were even more likely to pick the winning politician in a foreign country, in an election that hadn't even happened yet, out of two people that they didn't know. Oh, that's foreigners though, right? Actually, an Australian study found that looks were the best predictor of who would win each electorate of the 2004 federal election. It's also been shown to be true in America, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Japan. Is this just coincidence? It turns out that when we are working out who to trust, we are instantly attracted to beautiful people. So much so that our brains often forget to think about what really counts. But it's only when we're forced to concentrate, forced to get into the issue that we can go deeper than those superficial markers. And as we get into this message today, this passage, we're reminded about what really counts. Rather than putting our trust in appearances, rather than putting our trust in fake signs of importance, Because it's easy to be superficial and churches across the world, across the generations have been tripped up by appearances when really they should be thinking about what really counts. And if we're not careful, we'll end up looking for signs of success rather than signs of truth. That's certainly what was happening with the Corinthians when Paul was writing. And as we come to this passage, I hope you'll see that Paul, even though he wasn't attractive by world standards, he was focused on what really counts, and we should be too. Won't you join me? We begin this passage with an outline of the excruciating cost it would have been for Paul to preach and teach the gospel of truth. Life is difficult for Paul, that's an understatement, but... He's also bound to be an example, a leader, and to promote the gospel in whatever opportunity comes his way. Let's look at verse 3. 
of chapter 6. So we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our our ministry will not be discredited. Now, when he says no stumbling block, we might think that he's going to make himself as attractive as possible so that he can rally as many people around him as possible. But instead, he's going to show how he and his fellow leaders have been tested through great suffering and yet shown to be focusing on what really counts. They could have watered down their message and had an easier time being more popular. They could have just stayed at home and worked on their extensions or worked on their careers or worked on their muscles. But no, they devoted themselves to what really counts. There's natural disasters that he had to endure. In verse 4, he mentions troubles, hardships and distresses. Would you follow someone who had been shipwrecked and nearly drowned, not to mention bitten by a snake? Doesn't sound very attractive. That's Paul. Then there's man-made troubles in verse 5. He mentions beatings, imprisonments and riots. Would you want to follow someone who'd been jailed, beaten, tortured? Not very attractive, but that's Paul. And then there's the sort of sufferings that he voluntarily took on for himself, verse 5 again, the cost of sharing the gospel. He mentions hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. These triplets of trouble show the various kinds of suffering that Paul went through that he endured all in the name of what really counts. If Paul wasn't convinced that this message was true, he would have given up long ago because these sufferings look too great to endure, at least willingly. And yet he endured it, not with grumbling or complaining, verse 6, but in purity in understanding, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. Paul has been prepared to deal with whatever comes his way in the name of what really counts. What Paul is telling the Corinthians is how he's borne every struggle with patience and sincerity for them, relying on God so that the churches of Corinth and churches across the whole world can know the true gospel. So, why is Paul explaining this hardship? Well, the context of the letter is Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. It's gone backwards. The Corinthians seem to be shunning him and preferring to follow some more flashy, more successful, more attractive leaders who've infiltrated their church. They're following some more flashy, more attractive presentations of the gospel which seem to link to success in this world and achievement to the detriment of the gospel itself. The Corinthians have become more interested in glitz and glamour. The glitz and glamour of gifted speakers who promote an easier way to live. 
even though they're promoting a false gospel. To put it into some contemporary context, let's make a comparison. When you're looking at a potential leader, do you consider the straight teeth in their mouth more than the truth that comes out of their mouth? Unfortunately, in Australia, that seems to be the way and across the world we are seeing that. Do we think a person's house and their car and their job is a better indicator of their reliability, a better indicator of their importance than the truth they speak? It might be laughable to put it that way, but some churches do care more about the financial success of a potential leader the size of their church foyer as a sign of importance. They care more about these things than they do about the spiritual health of their church. Paul, however, wants none of that. He's pointing out just how lousy his life looks, but how it's got nothing to do with what really counts. And he goes on, verse 8, regarded as an imposter, yet genuine, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul's life doesn't look flashy at all, does it? He's not insta-famous. He's not a TV personality. He's not, we understand, even particularly attractive to look at. One early historian described him as bow-legged with a crooked nose. He's probably got scars from being tortured. He may not have all of his teeth. But Paul has been frank. He's laid himself bare So the Corinthians can see that appearances are not what matters, so that the Corinthians can know what really counts. So, having outlined the costs incurred in his ministry, Paul now puts the spotlight onto the Corinthians from verse 12. We're not holding back our affection from you. Oh, and even verse 11, we have opened wide our hearts to you, But you are withholding your affection for us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. The Corinthians, it seems, were holding back their affection. And that's putting it mildly. They were shunning Paul. They were treating him as second rate because of all of this trouble that he'd gone through. Because they preferred the flashy, attractive ministry of these so-called super apostles who had everything together, everything in their favour, looked really good with their impressive speech and their letters of commendation and reference. So at first it seems a little bit illogical if the Corinthians were so interested in attractiveness and flashiness Why would Paul try to win them back by describing his many troubles? It's because Paul wants to snap the Corinthians out of their fascination with appearance. It's because the situation has become dire 
the Corinthians are so distracted, so mesmerized by worldly success that it's even got to the extent that they're linking themselves with church ministers who don't believe the gospel. Let's look from verse 14. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, this might be a bit of a shock for you who've heard this quoted as a warning about marriage. For those of you who are married to a non-Christian or considering dating a non-Christian, this might be a concerning passage for you. But I'm going to go a bit further and say that actually this applies to everyone. This is not just speaking about couples. Paul's context here is about whole churches that are binding themselves to unbelieving leaders. A yoke, for those of you who don't know, is a strap or a block that you link pack animals to, yoke them together. Think of a snow sled being pulled by packed animals yoked together for a common purpose. And in the following verses, Paul talks about having things in common, in harmony, in agreement. But what's the point? Verse 16 is key here. Have a look. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's worship language. Worship language, temple. It's an echo of the Old Testament language of the physical temple where God dwelt. There were strict rules about how to engage in the temple, how to work in it, how to come into it, who should lead it. The consecration and purification rites that were necessary to be part of the temple and to be a leader in the temple. And Paul continues to echo this temple language as he quotes from four Old Testament passages. You can see them there marked out in quote marks. Each of them originally in the context of the temple, God's temple, and of the worship that's required. Paul has worship in view here. And so when he talks about not being yoked with unbelievers, he's prohibiting Christians from partnering with unbelievers in matters so important as worship, for they are God's temple. What a sorry state the Corinthians must have been in. They've become so caught up in the ways of the world that they're trading away what really counts. So much that Paul has to rebuke them. Don't you know, he says in verse 16, we are collectively the temple of the living God. We as a group of people are the temple of God. God has said that he will live and walk among these people through the temple. And so you know what? If God is going to dwell in it, it has to be pure. We learnt that from the Old Testament. The Corinthians are making it impure. They're polluting their temple. 
their worship is clouded. Of course, this passage has relevance to marriage too. If you measure your success by your marriage and your family to the extent that you would be willing to start dating a non-Christian in order to achieve worldly success of marriage and family, then it's likely that your worship will be watered down and you'll lose sight of what really counts. Because we must look past worldly success and focus instead on what really counts. You know, Jesus took a dim view of temple pollution as well. Do you remember when he was in the temple back in John chapter 2, when he overturned the tables full of cash and he drove out all the animals? What was his criticism? How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Of course, he was in a physical temple, but it can be appropriated to what is happening here in Corinthians because the Corinthians are warned against turning God's temple into just a display of wealth, just a display of flashiness, into making their Christian community just another place for making money and chasing worldly success. They're being reminded to come back to what counts, which is where God dwells. Some of you might remember a movie called City Slickers, a while ago now, where that old cowboy Curly talks about the secret of life. The secret of life is just one thing, one thing. One thing that you have to stick to. And unfortunately, he doesn't explain what the one thing is and he takes the answer to the grave with him. Now, you might have heard me talk about what really counts. But I'm not going to do a curly on you. Because what really counts, I'm about to share it with you so that we can have no doubt about it. Paul was at pains to make sure his readers followed what really counts. He showed it counted for so much that he was prepared to endure beatings, jail, starvation, hunger, misery, sleepless nights. He'd shown the Corinthians that they were risking what really counted if they were chasing after worldly displays of success and polluting their church with things that just weren't appropriate. What really counts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what really counts. It's not a surprise to many of you, but for some of you, you might not be clear on what I mean when I say the gospel. We only have to look at what Paul was writing just a few chapters earlier in his first letter to the Corinthians to find out what he thought really counts, because he says it's of first importance. What I consider to be of first importance, I pass on to you, it's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to those scriptures. What really counts is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's of first importance, Paul would say. Everyone struggles with sin. Everyone looks to find achievement and satisfaction in things other than God. 
when we chase success, when we chase fame, when we chase financial security as though that's going to give us worth instead of looking to God who is the true source of our success, when we trust in our own hard work as though that's going to win us merit instead of trusting in the work of Jesus who died in accordance with the scriptures. And like the Corinthians, that might lead you to put your trust in someone who has the veneer of success as you chase the get-rich-quick scheme, as you chase the ideal of the perfect family, as though that is what will let you know that you've got it all together. As you chase the perfect career, as though that's going to help you know that your life is worthwhile. Well, those misguided decisions led people to despise Jesus, who was a lowly tradesman, an uneducated man, a Jew, unattractive, no wife, no children, no real worldly signs of success, not to mention condemned as a criminal, not to mention executed. But what really counts is that Jesus was the only man, the only person who never sinned. He was the one and only son of God. He died and he rose from the dead. What really counts is that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so much so that his death and resurrection becomes of first importance, such that all of our decisions must flow from it. It is his death that really counts. It is his death that pays the penalty that sin deserves. It is his death that makes us acceptable. Nothing that we do contributes to that. And because of that, our church can be the temple of the living God with Christ himself as the foundation. We are his people. So how should we live if we think that that is what really counts? Paul gives the answer from chapter 7. He says, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You see, God has promised that those who believe in him will be his people, his temple. He has fulfilled that promise in Jesus because Jesus buys us back from the death we deserve. Just like purifying a temple... In the Old Testament, he purifies us, his temple, with his blood. And if we've been purified as a temple, why would we allow sin to contaminate that temple? Why would we allow sin back in to muddy the water? Why would we welcome in a contaminated message that says, oh, worldly success, that's what you really want, attraction, fame, fortune, a big congregation, that's what you really want, do whatever it takes to achieve those things. That's forgetting what really counts. 
Paul has endured a whole lot to make sure the Corinthian church is pure. All those things. And as he can see them walking away and chasing what glitters, he's not going to go without a fight. In verse 2, he pleads with them to come back in. To make room for us in your hearts, he says. We've wronged no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in your hearts that we'd even die with you. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they should love him as a leader because he suffered for them, because he would die for them, but most importantly because he is pointing them towards what really counts. He's not asking for much in return. He just wants them to make room for him to direct them. That's how it was in Corinth which in Paul's words was a temple of the living God, but at risk of forgetting what really counts. Port Macquarie Presbyterian Church is a temple of the living God. Are we at risk of forgetting what really counts? Are we preferring to focus on worldly success? Do we look at other churches with their bigger buildings, with their larger congregations, with their richer pastors, and with their more influential political campaigns, their clout in this world, and we think, oh, gee, that church is more successful. Maybe they've got it. Maybe they've got it together. But do we really think about what really counts? Are we thinking about what really counts? And when we look at missionaries and their small influence and Small churches in the developing world that, well, what good is going to come from there? They're just facing oppression all day. It doesn't look very effective. Are we really thinking about what really counts? Those of you who are students, when you go to school and you find yourselves attracted to the cool kids rather than to the Christians, I know that was true of me, are we really thinking about what really counts? And as parents, when we're more interested in our children's report cards than their faith, are we thinking about what really counts? As church members, do you make room in your hearts for your church leaders? Are you ready to take direction in what really counts? from a competent Christian leader. If you don't have time to listen to the message of a Christian leader, then what is influencing you? Who is influencing you? Are you choosing a leader based on their car, their house, their number of YouTube streams, their humour, their physical appearance, their connection with you through a screen? Or are you thinking about what really counts? And that will have an impact on you when you go to choose a church leader because you will start thinking about their theology rather than just what car they drive, how well they speak, how good they look, how 
large a family they have. Because if we forget about theology, we'll start going from the, for the thin veneer of Christianity that's only sort of skin deep. And we'll take on that leader, but then the thin Christian veneer gets ditched as soon as troubles come and numbers start to dwindle or finances start to struggle. So let's look past mere appearances and dig deeper to find what really counts. And then let's make room in our hearts for those leaders. Think of Nelson Mandela, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, jailed for what they believe. Jail time actually strengthened their campaign. And as church leaders, do we look for the right things in a church member? Do we look for a person with skills to share, money to contribute? Do we think about their criminal record when we're trying to work out who should belong in our church? Or do we look for what really counts? Let's look past the flashy displays externally and look deeper to a person's reliance on the gospel for working out who should be part of our community. One name you probably wouldn't have heard of is uh, Miriam Ibrahim, who was charged with apostasy in a Muslim country and sentenced to jail for her faith in Jesus. She was given three days to convert away from Christianity, but in the face of international outrage, she was let off with just a hundred lashes for her faith. She said when she was released, there are many Miriams in Sudan. The world may think that we haven't got it all together because we suffer and struggle and we have pain and difficulty. But that's because we must refuse to follow the world's way of the good life. We must refuse to focus on the worldly show of strength because actually we follow what really counts. Whether we're leaders or students or members or workers or retirees, heed the word, the word of Paul, the warning of Paul that as God's people, God's temple, we must avoid being swayed by the desires of the world. In the words of the 100-year-old hymn we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. You see, Jesus points us away from impressive buildings, away from rich businessmen, and he points us instead to little children, to slaves, to the orphan, to the poor, to the widow, defined not by their earthly status, but instead by their dependence on what really counts, the gospel of Jesus. Let us do likewise. Let's pray. Father, you call us to look past the flashy displays of strength and uh, attractiveness. Lord, may we make room in our hearts for what really counts. And Lord, may we do this with the help of the Spirit that moves us to will and to act according to your good purpose, not just today, 
but every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.